Uh, as you know, I'm Clark Urban, a member of the Speaker um, Series Committee. Thank you for being here this morning. Well, it is October, and those of us who are Washingtonians, which is everybody knows, that the Supreme Court term begins in October. So who better to have with us as a speaker than America's, I think it's fair to say, foremost expert on the court, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Rosen. <laughs> Jeff disagrees, but uh, we all agree. Uh, Jeff is the president and chief executive officer of the National Constitution Center, which is a uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization whose mission is to educate the public about the U.S. Constitution. I would argue a very timely enterprise. <laughs> He's also, of course, a professor at the George Washington University Law School here and a contributing editor now at The Atlantic. The Los Angeles Times called him the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator, so we're all in for a treat. Jeff has authored no fewer so far than six books, the penultimate one, uh, was a biography of William Howard Taft, President and um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And the newest one, we were just chatting about it, will be out next month in November, and it is titled RBG, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Love, Liberty, and Law. Jeff is a graduate of Harvard College. He was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford and a graduate of the Yale Law School. With that, please join me in welcoming Jeff Rosen. Thank you so much, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me here to this historic spot to discuss the upcoming Supreme Court term. It's hard to think of a more relevant time to talk about the Constitution and a more meaningful place than here on Lafayette Square with the White House uh, behind us and the Supreme Court ahead of us and uh, Congress uh, nearby as well. Um, I'm gonna begin by telling you about a remarkable experience I had last night. And that was uh, a convening that the National Constitution Center did of all living former Supreme Court clerks to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Supreme Court clerkships. In 1919, Congress passed the first statute authorizing the justices to hire clerks, and the National Constitution Center, which has this inspiring nonpartisan mission to educate Americans about the Constitution, took it upon ourselves to invite all the former living clerks to gather in Washington to celebrate the institution of the clerkships and to inspire the next generation to learn about the Constitution. And we had uh, about 350 clerks representing 25 justices over 50 terms. Uh, the uh, first term represented was Justice Hugo Black in 1959 and Judge Guido Calabresi gave an inspiring talk about his clerkship. And then we had three justices, Justices Breyer, Gorsuch, and Kennedy. Uh, who talked about their experiences, uh, Justices Kennedy and Gorsuch as the first justice and former clerk to serve together on the bench, Justice Breyer talking about his experience clerking for Justice uh, Arthur Goldberg, and it was an unforgettable evening. And I think what made it so meaningful was this vision of brilliant lawyers of different perspectives over the years who chose to sit not with their fellow clerks by justice, but with their fellow clerks by term, because what bound them was more important than what divided them. What they had learned from their clerkship was a shared love for the Constitution, a shared devotion to reasoned discourse, to disagreeing without being disagreeable, and a shared commitment to the idea that law is something more than politics. 
all of these clerks and the justices themselves insisted not to think of the Constitution as just uh, ideological alignments of Republicans against Democrats, but instead as an aspiration of something that could bind America uh, around common ideals. And during the conversation with the justices, both Justices Kennedy and Gorsuch and Breyer urged the clerks to go forth as ambassadors of light and to defend the judiciary as a nonpartisan institution so that people understood that what the judges are trying to do is something more than simply enact their political views, but instead to converge around civil discourse about the meaning of the Constitution. So it was an evening that no one who was there will soon forget, and I open with it because that's the spirit in which I want to talk to you about this upcoming Supreme Court term. It's going to be a remarkably uh, contested term uh, with cases involving religion, LGBT rights, abortion. The court just decided yesterday to hear the first significant abortion case in several years. The Second Amendment and immigration, and of course all this takes place as the presidential election uh, gears up, and the nation wants to know, all of us are eager to know, will the court, uh, with Justice Kavanaugh having replaced Justice Kennedy, devolve into groups of five Republicans against four Democrats, or will Chief Justice Roberts succeed in his stated ambition of promoting the institutional legitimacy of the court above the ideological interests of the justices, of persuading his colleagues to converge whenever possible around narrow, unanimous opinions that avoid ideological splits, and uh, what will the shape of the court be as a result? Um, this is a view that may be, uh, that some of you may be skeptical of. There was an editorial in the New York Times this morning which says the new Supreme Court term is beginning, they're going to decide the Second Amendment and abortion and immigration and LGBT rights. It's going to be just the conservatives against the liberals and watch out. That's, it's not a view I share. And in fact, the mission of the Constitution Center, which is this inspiring institution in Philadelphia on Independence Mall, right across from Independence Hall where the Constitution was drafted, with rare copies of the Declaration, the very first copy of draft of the Constitution written by James Wilson, early copies of the Bill of Rights, and remarkable documents about the Civil War and Reconstruction, including Dred Scott's Freedom Petition. This great educational center in Philadelphia, which also has a remarkable online Constitution that I'll tell you more about later, is committed to the proposition that law is more than politics. So I'll begin by doing what Justice Kennedy and Gorsuch exhorted, and what I always do when I teach constitutional law at GW, and say, let's try to separate this morning our political from our constitutional views. We will not convince each other about the right political answer to the great questions that the court will be discussing, but let's open ourselves up to asking not what we think the government should do, but what the Constitution allows it to do. In other words, when deciding the Second Amendment case, the judges will attempt, at least, not to ask whether they think that the gun control issues are a good or bad idea as a policy matter, but whether the Second Amendment allows or forbids it. When they're talking about abortion, what they're supposed to ask is not whether they think reproductive choice is good or bad as a moral or political matter, but whether the Constitution allows or forbids the states to regulate it. 
So by thinking of these issues in constitutional rather than political terms and opening yourself up to the possibility that the Constitution might compel a result that clashes with your political views, you'll do just what the justices conceive of themselves as doing and what the Constitution Center uh, believes that all citizens must do if this republic is to survive as uh, under a rule of law bound by uh, common ideals. Okay, let's talk about the cases. And let's begin with the LGBT rights cases, which the court will hear just next week. The court term begins on the first Monday in October, and on the first day of the term, the court will hear two cases involving two uh, gay people who were fired because of their sexual orientation. Uh, one uh, guy was a flight instructor, and when um, sort of jumping, uh, I, I think he did parachute jumps, and when just before the jump, sometimes when he was uh, embracing the women that he was jumping with, he'd say, don't worry about this, I'm gay. He would make a joke to reassure them. And uh, he was fired, and he said it was because he said that uh, he was gay. And the question is whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, includes discrimination because of sexual orientation. And then later in the week, I think, uh, the court will be hearing a case involving a transgender individual who also says uh, that they were discriminated against because of sex and fired because they had uh, transitioned. So the statutory question is, complicated or easy depending on your methodological approach to statutory interpretation. So you remember that the late Justice Scalia was famously a textualist. He said we should just look at the text of the law and not look at what the legislators intended because if we look at legislative history then all those congressional staffers might slip in all sorts of their pet projects but the only thing that was actually enacted is the text. And that led Justice Scalia in a case called the Ancale case in the 1990s to hold that sexual harassment on the basis of sexual orientation was discrimination because of sex, because the individual wouldn't have been discriminated against but for his sex. In other words, if he had been attracted to women rather than to men, then he wouldn't have been discriminated against in the workplace. And Justice Scalia also invoked a, a case called Price Waterhouse, which said that uh, workplace decisions based on sexual stereotyping violate Title VII if men are expected to behave like men and not to uh, behave uh, in non-manly ways, then that itself is a form of discrimination because of sex. So um, one side is arguing that the individuals here who were fired because of their sexual orientation or because of their transgender status also were discriminated because of sex in precisely these ways. They wouldn't have been fired but for their sex or sexual attraction and they were fired on the basis of sexual stereotypes, and they further argued that the text, because of sex, uh, should include uh, sexual orientation. The argument on the other side is Congress in 64 clearly never intended the words because of sex to cover sexual orientation. In fact, it has a fascinating legislative history. The words because of sex were snuck in by a sexist congressman at the last minute who thought it would kill the bill. Basically, he thought it would be so preposterous that any congressman would actually vote to forbid sex discrimination that he just stuck in those words. <laughs> and to his surprise, the act passed. And now, whatever he was thinking, he certainly wasn't planning to protect uh, uh, LGBT individuals or transgender individuals. So um, 
If you cared about legislative history, then you'd say, no, this law doesn't apply. Now, the, and the liberals um, generally do care about legislative history. And Justice Breyer has been the greatest exponent of the argument that, of course, we should look to what Congress intended and its purpose in all of its uh, full evidence. And Justice Sotomayor is also a great defender of legislative history. So it's possible you could see an unusual alliance of the justices pulled in different directions based on their methodologies. The liberals drawn toward legislative history and purpose, the conservatives supposedly just sticking to text. I'm not going to give you any predictions this morning. My predictions are worth what you're paying for them. But um, it's, it's a, it's a, they're complicated cases, and many observers think that the transgender case actually might be uh, more likely to win conservative votes than the sexual orientation case because someone who is fired because they have transitioned from one gender to another is more clearly being discriminated because of sex than someone discriminated because of their sexual orientation. We'll see, but when you look at these cases, I really want you to give the, in the spirit of Justices Kennedy and Gorsuch and Breyer saying, try to understand what we think we're doing, don't imagine it's just conservatives who don't like LGBT rights and liberals who do deciding these cases. They're making a decision about the meaning of this statute based on their approaches to statutory interpretation. And the lower courts have divided on this. Uh, as do most cases that go up to the Supreme Court. So like all of these cases, they're tough cases. Uh, the second case involves the Second Amendment, and the court has not heard an important Second Amendment case since the Heller decision in 2010. And the, that decision held for the first time uh, ever that the Second Amendment is an individual right, uh, and it includes a right of self-defense, and therefore uh, a Chicago law that completely banned gun possession within the home was unconstitutional, and that built off of uh, a, a case called McDonald, which had the same reasoning to a DC law. Basically, DC and Chicago had the most restrictive gun laws in the whole country. Only DC and Chicago banned gun possession in the home, and the court struck down both of those bans on the grounds that if the Second Amendment has any self-defense component, then it must allow you to keep a gun in the home for self-defense. Heller and McDonald were not sweeping decisions that called into question all gun control. And in the nonpartisan Constitution Center spirit, I can say if we have a gun control uh, problem in this country, namely if there's not uh, gun regulations that are passed, it hasn't so far been the Supreme Court's fault because the Supreme Court and lower courts have upheld almost every significant gun regulation that they've confronted since the Heller and McDonald decision, including bans on AK-47s, bans on uh, concealed uh, carry, and bans on guns next to vulnerable places like schools. So Justice Scalia in the Heller case basically said, we're not calling into question reasonable regulations, and lower courts have interpreted that to allow lots of the regulations that majority of Americans support. That's not universally uh, popular on the court. Uh, several justices led by Justice Clarence Thomas have criticized the court for relegating the Second Amendment to a second class right and saying that the court should review more of these regulations, including bans on AK-47, and should s review them more skeptically uh, so that the Second Amendment rights are treated at least as seriously as First Amendment rights. That would, if it gained a majority on the court, dramatically increase the level of judicial scrutiny of Second Amendment regulations, calling into question many of the kind of laws that I just mentioned, and therefore the stakes are high. We don't know how um, 
many votes there are for Justice Thomas's position. Justice Gorsuch has joined him in some of these separate opinions, but uh, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito haven't expressed their views, so it's not clear that there's a majority for dramatically increasing judicial oversight of the Second Amendment rights. This, this uh, case the court is supposed to hear is interesting. It was a New York law that was really draconian. It forbade people from taking guns that were licensed at home and carrying them to licensed shooting ranges outside of New York. So it's a licensed gun, and New York didn't allow you to bring it to a shooting range outside of the state. It was so draconian, and also called into question rights of interstate travel, that once New York realized that the Supreme Court was going to hear it, they repealed the law. <laughs> Basically, they didn't want the court to go up because they're pretty sure it was going to lose because no, no, no other state has such a draconian restriction. So the first question is whether the case is moot, meaning that it uh, no longer is a ripe controversy, and whether the justices should agree to hear it. And they're deciding uh, next week, if they haven't decided already, whether or not to dismiss it as moot. But there are other cases bubbling up in the pipeline that could be heard this year, including bans on concealed carry uh, laws, and the court has not. The Supreme Court has not he heard a case involving your right to carry a licensed gun in public, and if it took that up, that would be a really big case. Um, if you like, in the uh, after I've run through the other cases, I can tell you a little bit about uh, what I learned about the text and history of the Second Amendment from the National Constitution Center's amazing interactive Constitution website, which is an incredible resource that I learn from every day and I will tell you more about. But let's just run through the rest of the major cases first. Uh, uh, I feel like a Ginsu knife salesman, but that's not all. You know? <laughs> there's more. Next, there's religious discrimination. <laughs> and there's a really important religious liberty case involving a very basic question. Can a state uh, Missouri, I think here, uh, uh, make public funds available that individuals can use as scholarships either at uh, secular or sectarian institutions. Um, Missouri has a Blaine Amendment. The Blaine Amendments, which some of you know, were passed in the 19th century with the support of James G. Blaine. What was the campaign slogan? Blaine, Blaine, that congenital liar from the state of Maine. That was <laughs> his opponent's uh, slogan. But it's a, it's not, it doesn't do him justice. I just found in the great used bookstore uh, on Wisconsin in Georgetown that's about to close across from Patisserie Poupon. Go there, it's, there's about three weeks left and it's basically the second used book, bookstore that's still around in, in DC. So anyway, there's a, a Blaine wrote a brilliant uh, two volume history of Congress from 1865 to 1888, a history of reconstruction that's scholarly and deep and riveting. So he, uh, he was a great scholar. Um, but not a friend of the blending of church and state because he was so anti-Catholic that he persuaded a bunch of states to pass amendments prohibiting any public dollars from going to sectarian institutions, by which he meant Catholic schools, and he wanted to stop the Catholic uh, hospitals and schools from achieving public aid. And in this case, Missouri in, 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 uh, interpreted its Blaine Amendment to prohibit a neutral, essentially, voucher program uh, that could have been used to direct money to public or sectarian schools. Now, uh, the court has a bunch of precedents that are relevant here. 
It upheld school vouchers in a case called Zelman in the 1990s, uh, a case joined by Justice Breyer. It was a bipartisan uh, case, which said that as long as private individuals, rather than uh, the state, determine the destination of public funds, then parents are free to use vouchers at sectarian or secular schools as they please. It was a principle of religious neutrality rooted in the First Amendment, and as I say, it gained bipartisan support. Uh, a case on the other side was a case called Locke v. Davis, which said that when the voucher or state money was used to educate people for the ministry, then that violated the First Amendment because it was so directly implicated in religious instruction that it violated the First Amendment's prohibition on establishments of religion. And then uh, most recently, just a term or so ago, there was a case involving uh, money that went to a a sectarian school to fix this playground. The rubber mats on the playground were uh, needed to be repaired and state money went there and the court said by a seven to two majority, that's fine under the religious neutrality principle. As long as um, these funds are available to all schools and are not being used for primarily religious instruction but instead for playgrounds, then they're okay. And then finally, there was the Bladensburg Cross case just last year. Remember in Maryland, that huge World War I cross? It was originally on private land, but then Maryland bought it, so suddenly it's a huge cross on public land, and the question is, is that consistent with the Establishment Clause? And the court, by a seven to two majority, Justices Kagan and Breyer joining the conservatives, said there's a, a history exception for public monuments, because this had been up for a long time, and its primary purpose was to commemorate the war dead rather than to celebrate the Christian church, then therefore the cross was okay. So all this is to say is that it looks like there is a seven to two majority on this court in favor of the principle of religious neutrality. Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor are the two dissenters who are more strict separationists. So again, without uh, using my predictions for, for anything at all, I think the conventional wisdom is there's a decent chance that the court in this case will say it's okay to have funds that go to sectarian or secular schools as long as the primary purpose is not education in the ministry. Uh, The only question is how broad or narrow the decision will be. Will uh, Justice Gorsuch, for example, who uh, in a previous case had called into question the ministry exception, say that there's no limit on the way that sectarian schools can use public funds? Or will Chief Justice Roberts try to achieve a narrow decision uh, maintaining the ministry exception and limiting uh, it to this case. The, the other big question is whether the Blaine Amendments are unconstitutional, whether these number of states that prohibit any religious money uh, from being taken from the state, does that itself violate the Establishment Clause? And that would be a big deal, and it looks like Justices Gorsuch and uh, there may be four justices who are willing to do that. So completely fascinating case, but again, don't don't think of it in terms of the pro-religion justices versus the anti-religion justices, the real effort is to work out the principle of religious neutrality and to try to figure out what its contour should be. And this is one where uh, Justices Kagan and Breyer are making common cause with, the, with, their, with their colleagues. Uh, I think our next case involves DACA, the uh, Dreamers case. And this is a complicated question of administrative law, and it's made more complicated by the fact that when President Obama decided to defer deportation of the Dreamers, 
he did so by executive order. Remember, he couldn't get it through Congress. And Congress repeatedly refused to give him the authority to deny the deportation. So he passed an executive order saying that he was going to do it on his own. And the Supreme Court, a few years ago, divided four to four on the question of whether his executive order was a legitimate exercise of presidential authority or whether it clashed with Congress's plenary authority over immigration, especially given the fact that Congress had refused to give the president the authority he sought. It was a four to four decision because it was the year that the late Justice Scalia had passed, so there were only eight justices. A four to four decision has the effect of affirming the lower court decision, which, I, which had um, allowed DACA to go forward. But then President Trump took office and he reversed the decision, uh, again by executive order. But his, the basis for his decision was that the original Obama executive order was illegal. So it's complicated on a couple levels. First, what do the justices think of executive orders? Are all the liberal justices right now who don't like President Trump doing his uh, policies by executive order, how do they deal with the fact that this one is reversing a, a, a similar order by President Obama? Then what's their view on the underlying merits of whether or not the original executive order was uh, permissible? And then there's just a procedural question of whether President Trump went through the right hoops when he repealed this executive order rather than seeking notice and comment. So the stakes are huge, 700,000 dreamers uh, involved, but the ultimate disposition of the case may turn as much on questions involving administrative law and your views about uh, executive versus congressional authority as on whether or not you like the dreamer policy. And last but not least is abortion. So uh, just two days ago, I guess, the court decided to hear the Louisiana case involving the question of whether uh, Louisiana could impose a admitting privileges requirement so that if uh, doctors in clinics were going to perform uh, abortions, they had to meet uh, a high administrative burden in order to have admitting privileges. And just two years ago, the court had struck down a similar law admitting privileges law in Texas on the grounds that it would have the effect of reducing the number of clinics in Texas essentially to zero or one, making it impossible for most women uh, to seek abortions without traveling for a long uh, period of, uh, without, without a lot of travel. And that this would impose an undue burden on the right to choose recognized in a case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey decided in 1992 when the court upheld the core of Roe v. Wade. And when uh, the Louisiana case first came before the court, Chief Justice Roberts joined his liberal colleagues in issuing a stay. He said, since we decided in the Texas case that these admitting privileges laws were impermissible, even though I, Chief Justice Roberts, disagreed with that Texas decision, I still think lower courts have to obey the law of the Supreme Court, and I am not going to let them get around it. So people are wondering here, will Chief Justice Roberts' commitment to institutional legitimacy uh, trump his original opposition to the uh, laws, uh, to, to striking down the admitting privileges laws? Or now that the court's going to hear the case as an original matter, will he just think, I think the admitting privileges laws are not an undue burden and they're okay? Everyone wants to know, of course, what Justice Kavanaugh thinks about these issues, too. It'll be his first big abortion case on the D.C. Circuit. He had dissented from a case deferring the 
uh, basically allowing an immigrant uh, woman to have an abortion, but it was an administrative and procedural case that didn't go to the heart of Roe. So basically you all want to know, and the whole country wants to know what, what's going to happen to Roe v. Wade. So I did have the chance to ask Justice Ginsburg about this um, as part of the conversations for this new book, which I'm so excited about. It's, it's called Conversations with RBG, and I've had the incredible honor of knowing her for many years, and I'll share that I first met her in 1991 when I was a law clerk on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. And I was clerking for another judge, and I met her on the elevator of the courthouse uh, down uh, on 4th Street, and she was uh, coming downstairs from an exercise class called Jazzercise. <laughs> and she was, uh, a, as you can imagine, a formidable presence, uh, even in her gym clothes, and she was maintaining the sort of sphinx-like silence that those who don't know her can mistake for remote, remoteness. So we're standing on the elevator, and I just felt like I had to say something to break the ice, and I couldn't think of anything else to say except... What operas have you seen recently? <laughs> I, I don't think I even knew that she was an opera fan, but I am, and it was the only thing I could think, to think about. And as it happens, it was the right question, because as we all now know, she adores opera, and we just started chatting about it and started a friendship about uh, opera that persisted throughout that year. And then the next year, uh, uh, Justice White retired from the court, and uh, she was on President Clinton's shortlist, but amazingly, as it appears in retrospect, she was being opposed at the time by some women's groups who felt that uh, she had committed apostasy by criticizing Roe v. Wade. Justice Ginsburg thought the result in Roe was absolutely right, but she gave a pathbreaking and important series of lectures saying that first that the court decided the case too broadly. It should have just struck down the extreme Texas law at issue in that case, which had no exceptions even for the life and health of the mother, and not presumed to create an abortion series of regulations that would govern reproductive choice at every stage of pregnancy, including late-term abortions. She accurately predicted that this would create a backlash. It would stem the movement in favor of liberalizing abortion laws that had been very much a part of the uh, political scene before Roe was decided, and she believes that it would have avoided the incredible polarization of American judicial and political life that followed Roe. Also, and just as significantly, Justice Ginsburg argued that Roe should have been decided on the basis of women's equality rather than the right to privacy. Roe, in Justice Blackmun's opinion, was a rather cramped conception of privacy as a private decision between women and their male doctors. He had he worked for the Mayo Clinic and he was really keen on doctor's autonomy and thought that these wise men should be able to advise the vulnerable women in the privacy of their doctor's offices. And he had trouble locating that right in the text of the Constitution, which is why Roe was criticized by many scholars, liberal as well as conservatives, even some who liked very much the result on the grounds of being constitutionally vulnerable. And Justice Ginsburg said instead that Roe should have recognized that restrictions on abortion violate women's right to choose their own life path, their autonomy, their equal dignity, their ability to determine whether or not they shall be mothers or workers or doctors without having burdens imposed on them that are not imposed on men. And Justice Ginsburg believes that had Roe been decided on the basis of women's equality rather than the right to privacy, it would have had stronger constitutional foundations and might have been less <laughs> vulnerable. 
And she was vindicated to some degree in the Casey decision when the court, uh, in the decision by Justices Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter, did talk about the central equality and dignitary interests implicated by the right to choose. Anyway, Justice Ginsburg was not, uh, you know, she, she, was, she was garnering some opposition from women's groups. I had just, through an incredible serendipity, been hired at the age of 28 as the legal affairs editor of the New Republic magazine. This is in the old days when the New Republic was a wonderful place to start. And uh, there, was, there was no internet, and it was, uh, Andrew, I, it was a kind of act of nepotism. I'd gone to college with Andrew Sullivan, who was then the uh, editor. So I, this reference now is dated, but I used to say I was the Harriet Myers of legal journalism. <laughs> I got my job through that friendship with Andrew. But it was a huge break to be starting at the New Republic and writing about the law. So I wrote a piece basically saying that out of all the candidates on uh, the Clinton shortlist, Justice Ginsburg was the most respected by liberals and conservatives. And I told a story of a meeting I'd had a couple weeks earlier with the law clerks at the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. And I'd gone there and they told me that a few weeks earlier than that, Justice Scalia had been in and he was asked, if you had to spend the rest of your life locked on a desert island with Mario Cuomo or Bruce Babbitt, who were then the leading contenders for the Supreme Court, who would it be? And he said, without missing a beat, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, so I told that story, and she told the same story at Justice Scalia's uh, funeral, and she noted that within a few weeks, the president chose me. And the final footnote was that Senator Moynihan, who was then championing her nomination against Senator Kennedy, who was championing Justice Breyer, who was a hometown judge from Boston, wrote to me that he'd read my piece right before he talked to Clinton on Air Force One at a time when the women's groups were making a lot of noise, and Moynihan said that that had prompted him to talk to Clinton, so Justice Ginsburg very generously credited this piece with having a minor role in kind of getting her over the finish line. So we continued to correspond over the next 25 years, and, and mostly about opera, but also about the law, and just uh, last year, she agreed to let me collect our public conversations over the years into this book called Conversations with RBG, and I was telling Clark how stunned I was uh, in June last year, I'd given her the manuscript um, earlier that year, and then of course she had uh, the fall in her chambers and, and, and uh, cancer surgery, and I didn't want to bother her and was praying for her recovery, and 10 minutes after the Supreme Court term ended, at the end of June, I got an email from her saying, I have the manuscript, come in and I'll give it to you on Monday. I came in and she handed me this manuscript with every page marked up in her beautiful handwriting in pensible with, she's the most legendary copy editor and deadline enforcer and, <laughs> uh, in the world. And I was stunned. I said, how is it possible that you found time for this project in the middle of all your astonishing responsibilities? She said, well, I did it in the back of cars and uh, sometimes you know, on, on trips and I told you I'd have it and I wanted you to have it. And this vision of this towering figure one of the greatest advocates for equality in American history, making the time through her extraordinary self-discipline to use every moment of the day for productive work or elevating leisure, dazzles and inspires me every day. And I asked her in the last interview, you know, how do you do it? Your, your mother often told you, I noted, as she often says in interviews, to overcome unproductive emotions like anger and jealousy. 
And I said, that's the advice of the great wisdom traditions, the, the Jewish, Christian, and uh, all the faith traditions counsel this, but it's very hard to achieve in practice. Yes, it is, she said. How do you actually do it? And she said, because I realize if I don't do it, then I will lose precious time for productive work. Hmm, that's right, you know, and it's just, it's just a life lesson of the most extraordinary power. Uh, and, 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 uh, and then I said, you know, j j just do it. Don't allow yourself to get bogged down in these unproductive emotions so that you can follow your path, you can spread the light, and you can uh, serve others, which is what she does every day. Anyway, that's the book, and I'm really excited about it. So, but it's a long wind-up to the fact that I also asked her many times in the book over the years, will Roe be overturned? Including, most recently, uh, last July 2nd, during our last interview. And the book is in galleys, so I can share this with you. Uh, and I said, well, you know, will, will Roe be overturned now that Justice Kavanaugh is on the court? And she said she was skeptically hopeful that it will not be overturned because she believes that Chief Justice Roberts is sufficiently committed to the institutional legitimacy of the court that he will do what his predecessor, Chief Justice Rehnquist, did and join decisions that he might have disagreed with as an original matter because he realizes that overturning Roe would make the court look irredeemably political. To overturn a decision which has been reaffirmed so many times by justices of different uh, perspectives appointed by presidents of both parties, uh, she said, would, would, be, uh, would harm the court's institutional legitimacy. <clears throat> and then I asked her, you know, how do you think Justice Kavanaugh would vote? And she suggested that she thought it was all up to Roberts. So there we go. Um, and uh, she also repeated something which she told me many times in our interviews, was that if Roe were overturned, the main effect would be felt on poor women. That basically women of means will be able to get uh, abortions just as they do now. First of all, the ones who live in blue states and places like D.C., there'll be no change. Because remember, if Roe is overturned, it doesn't mean that abortion is legal or illegal everywhere. It means it goes back to the states to decide. It takes away the federal constitutional protection. And D.C. and New York and California will maintain or increase their protections for reproductive choice. It's places like Louisiana and Texas where the burdens will be felt. But there are almost no clinics there now. That's the whole point of this Louisiana case. The number of clinics might go from two to one, but one is not a lot, and if you live on the other side of Louisiana and you're a poor woman, you can't get to that clinic already. So um, Justice Ginsburg said, what sense does that make as national policy that the burdens are felt all on the poor and the, and, the, and the rich can exercise choice? But that's what she thinks the effect of overturning Roe will be, and she does not think that Roe will be overturned. So that is my uh, busman's tour of the great cases that the court will be deciding, and uh, uh, I would love to take your questions. Thank you for asking for it. So let me make a plug for the Constitution Center's interactive constitution, where you can really learn the answer. It's this amazing free online tool. Just You can get the app or Google interactive constitution. You can click on any provision of the Constitution, like the Second Amendment. Here, I'll do it now, because it's so exciting to see. And you can find the top liberal and conservative scholars in America, nominated by the conservative Federalist Society and the liberal 
American Constitution Society with a thousand words about what they agree the, the Second Amendment means, and then separate statements about what they disagree about. Multiply that by all 80 clauses of the Constitution, and it's a, it's a constitutional feast. I'm, you know, I teach this stuff, and I learn something new every time I, I log on. But again, that's, that's not all. There, there's more on this amazing tool. You can, explore, you can explore the early drafts of every provision of the Constitution, including the Second Amendment. In the case of the Second Amendment, um, Madison, like all the Bill of Rights, Madison cut and pasted from revolutionary era state constitutions, and you can compare the language. And then you can see our, I do a weekly podcast called We the People with the leading liberal and conservatives debating issues in the news, and, and you can see those that are pegged to every uh, provision. And the final thing, which is so cool and meaningful, is that we're allowing people on the interactive constitution, classrooms around the country from... Uh, Philadelphia to DC or California to Louisiana to sign up for hour-long conversations about the Constitution moderated by judges or master teachers. So it's an amazing platform. The College Board is bringing it to all five million advanced placement students saying that they should learn about the First Amendment on this tool before they graduate, and we want to bring it to everyone in America, including kids here in DC public schools. So that's my plug for the Interactive Constitution. Now I'll answer your question. So the Second Amendment, let first we say explore it. So we go to the Second Amendment. I need my constitutional reading glasses to be able to see it. Um, and we see here Nelson Lund and Adam Winkler, who are the top liberal and conservative scholars nominated by both lawyers groups, which give the following account of the history. They say implicit in the debate between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists are two shared assumptions. First, the proposed new constitution gave the federal government almost total legal authority over the army and the militia Second, the federal government should not have any authority at all to disarm the citizenry. They disagreed only about whether an armed populace could adequately deter federal oppression. So what's so important about this is, and again, this is both sides agreeing, that the framers are really concerned about protecting liberty, and they're concerned that this new federal government, which now for the first time has the power to call up the state militias, might use that power to take away people's liberty, not just their guns, but to suppress their free speech, to uh, quarter soldiers in their home to be tyrannical. So they want to ensure that the people can defend themselves uh, when they're organized in state militias. And that's why they don't want the militias to be completely disarmed. So it's a completely different question than the court is asking today. It's not, is it just supposed to protect the right of the militias to serve the common defense? And it's not, should there be an individual right to bear arms? It's how can the people organized as militias defend themselves if the president over in the White House becomes tyrannical like the king and tries to take away their liberty? So that's the first interesting thing. Then you go to the drafting table, which is the early drafts, and this really blew my mind because it was so unfamiliar, and Justice Scalia missed this in his opinion. Uh, when, you, when you go to the revolutionary era state constitutions that Madison cut and pasted from, only two out of the 13 recognized an individual right to bear arms, as opposed to a collective right of militias, Pennsylvania and Vermont. And you can, well, I won't uh, click through it, but uh, Pennsylvania says the people have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves or for purposes of killing game, and Vermont has a similar provision. But all the others, and the best place to start is always the Virginia Declaration of Rights by George Mason, because that's what Madison and Thomas Jefferson had by their side when they wrote the Declaration of the Constitution. The Mason version is a, a clearer, I wonder if I can get it fast, it kind of very well expresses how um, uh, the framers were trying to ensure that the feds couldn't 
disarming the citizenry through their militias. So what I learned from all that is this, the history does not tell us much about whether assault weapons bans are unconstitutional. Obviously, there were no assault weapons then. And in the separate statements by the two scholars, the liberal scholar says, well, of course, assault weapons ban should be constitutional because the framers had all sorts of reasonable regulations of guns, including militia members to submit their muskets for public inspection to ensure their safety during the time of the framing. And the conservative scholar, Adam Winkler, uh, sorry, Nelson Lund, says, no, assault weapons bans don't make sense, not because no bans are okay, but because there's no closed class of assault weapons. It's like calling French fries freedom fries. And since we don't know what assault weapons are, it's too vague to ban assault weapons. But I hope you get just enough of a sense of this that it's a, you're shaking your head about, about that argument, but it's it, it, translating the Second Amendment in light of these new technologies, which are weapons, military-style weapons that the framers couldn't have anticipated is tough, especially because almost no side nowadays believes that the people should be able to carry assault weapons so that they can defend themselves against, you know, ICE or an overweening tyrannical federal government. Uh, so that's what I've got on the Second Amendment, and to learn more, check out the interactive constitution. Tim, can you stay for a few minutes? After yeah, sure. For additional questions? Yeah. Everyone, please join me. Thank you.